Welcome to Inside Motorsport, Tony Whitlock and Craig Gravel, and we're joined at this moment by Ron Badley. Ron is a, a long-time friend of mine, uh, getting towards uh, 50 odd years, and um, not that we're that old, of course. Um, and the reason that Ron is on the program this week is because he was involved with a man who unfortunately left the planet early this week, Graham McRae. And uh, Ron had a long and illustrious career in motorsport, one that took him to America for a period of time. And uh, he uh, went there because of Graham McRae. And Ron, welcome to Inside Motorsport. Tony, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's an absolute privilege to, uh, to be on and talking about Graham. Look, Ed, the wonderful thing is that before we get to Graham and, and his exploits and what an extraordinary man he was, I'd like to talk about your background. Now, you're a Melbourne-born and bred young man who did a mechanical apprenticeship, but before you actually started spinning the spanners regularly, you had quite an involvement in motorsport early on. I did, Tony. I was, I was really, um, I, I consider myself very, very privileged to, uh, to get into motorsport um, early on when I was probably about 13 or 14 and that was really just washing parts as we all started off with on weekends and I worked for a, a chap named Ron Bentley who has a very good name in motorsport and his preparation of a number of cars uh, fastidious and uh, a great teacher and I I really uh, valued my apprenticeship, which I did with Ron, uh, because it was everything had to be done absolutely perfect. It was, it was there was no shortcut, and he um, was a sort of bloke that put a bit of faith in you once you proved yourself. Uh, and that goes right back when Peter Brock actually bought his car, and it was uh, the little A30, and at that stage it had drum brakes on it, and uh, so I was I did a little bit of work on that with um, you know for Peter, not a great deal. But uh, we were more involved in uh, building the engine for uh, Peter back then. And I used to just do a little bit at the tracks with Peter from time to time until he um, went to Harry Fur. So you were involved early on in Formula Ford. I know that you raced and I was lucky enough to get time to uh, work with you on your Elfin 620. But yeah. uh, early on you were involved in the very start of Formula Ford. Yeah, that was, uh, oh, that was that's, going, that's going way back. Um, I worked I worked on a, for a chap called Richard Knight and he was, uh, he used to race a Mini back then, a little Cooper S, and I used to prepare that for him. And we got some very good engine horsepower out of that. Plus, uh, we got it to handle very well. I it was probably it was probably then I started to get a love for tuning suspensions and getting and because I realised you know you can have all the power in the world, but if you can't get it uh, to the ground and get around the track fast enough, it doesn't matter how much power you have, uh, you're never going to be able to be up the front. And and Richard was. He was a very good driver, and uh, he won he won a series in the minis, which I think it was uh, like between Victoria and New South Wales. And then from that, Bib Stillwell gave him the drive in the Formula Ford, and he won the Formula Ford Driver to Europe series. And so he left and went to England and never came back. Indeed, he was was he a car salesman by trade? He certainly was. And uh, he was a very good car yeah. salesman. <laughs> he paid a lot he paid a lot of bills. As you know, motor racing is uh is not cheap and uh he paid everything uh 
by being a car salesman. And uh, Bip still employed him, actually. Indeed. And, of course, he went on to work for Checkered Flag Motors, a race in Formula Ford uh, and Formula 3, I think, briefly in England. I believe it was, yes. Yes. Yes, he did reasonably yeah. well there and then just settled down. And I think he actually bought his... I think he actually bought a, a business. It might have been a dealership. Like a, might have been a Mazda dealership in England. And um, still lives there today. Loves it. Have you spoken to him in recent years? Well, it's interesting. The last time I spoke to him was uh, after my son won the 1999 Australian Open, uh, Australian Golf Open. And, uh, and out of the blue, I get this call from, from England, and it was Richard. And I, I wouldn't have spoken to Richard for probably, I don't know, probably 20 years prior to that. And, uh, oh, goodness me, we had a great old talk. And uh, it, was, it was really good just to catch up, catch up, you know, just on old times. It was good. Yeah, I enjoyed working for him. You moved into that category uh, quite some years ago, over 20 years ago, as you are talking about there. You're not really Ron Badley anymore. You're the father of Aaron Badley. Um, and it's a category that my uh, co-host, Mr. Ravel, has only recently had in the last uh, five or six years um, in having a son that uh, you uh, you lose your identity but gain a new one. Um, of course, Aaron Badley was a, uh, a world-class golfer and uh, both your mother and your wife, Joanne's mother, taught um, Aaron golf. And I'm sure that's much to your uh, great surprise and delight. And I'm still trying to learn the game. So I, never, <laughs> I, didn't take, I didn't take golf up till I was about 60 when uh, Aaron bought me a set of clubs and and got his caddy to give me a few lessons, and I'm still trying to battle my way around the golf course. You've worked for Richard Knight, and uh, he succeeded and moved on. Of course, his teammate was Larry Perkins back in the Stillwell days in Formula Ford, and Larry, yes. like Richard, won the uh, Australian Formula Ford Championship and went to Europe. But you were involved, of course, in Formula Ford, but many years later. So let's get back to where you were living in Melbourne still, working in racing cars, and the next big project I know that you're involved in was the one James Smith, the fastest laundry man in the in the West, so to speak. That was that was an interesting time. So I didn't work on the uh, on his Cooper S, but it was after he sold that, and then he he um, he did a deal with British what it was called that back then was British Leyland, or it might have been BMC, and um, I was on I. I'd met Jim and I and I was on I'd I'd been on the um, London to Sydney marathon and I worked I worked I did a stint with British uh, Leyland back then in the uh, in the Land Crabs the old Austin eighteen hundreds when um, Paddy Hopkirk um, or Jellic Knight Jack um, and who who was the who was the fellow I think he was a journalist. Green, something. James, James Lane Peach. No, it was. Oh, I'll think of his name later. He was a, he was a lovely chap. Um, and I always remember Joe at night, Jack. He was telling the story that because there was three drivers to a car, and uh, they would off they go, and they all decided to do eight hour stints. Well, what they did with uh, with this chap's name, which I'll think of in a minute. They used to wait till he'd fall, fall into a sleep and they'd wind his watch forward 
So he's only getting about two or three hours sleep, and they wake him up, and he's jelly kind Jack, and I think a great old sleep, and this bloke's trying to keep his eyes open for the whole time. It was, uh, but that's Jellic Night Jack. He was full of those stories. Some of them were true, too. <laughs> so you're then working on the rover, the dog, as it was known. Yes, it was affectionately called the dog. That's another interesting story. So we've uh, we got down to the dockyards and we've and they've offloaded the uh, the rover V8, which was straight from England, and this was a the sister car supposedly of Roy Pierpoint. Uh, who was a long-distance driver. Uh, he did a lot of driving in Europe and around England, and long-distance driving back then was very big. And he, he, he did okay. The car was a little bit heavy, um, a little bit underpowered, but it had a it had the original um, Buick, lightweight Buick V8 engine in it. And so we've um, we've unloaded the car, and I'm putting it up onto the onto the back of the uh, the truck, which we took down there, and I had a look under the car, and I couldn't see any stone chips or anything. You know, it was like it just came out of the factory, and I thought to myself, goodness me, I said, gee, they do a good job in preparing their cars when they sell them. So we get back to the workshop. So I put it up on uh, up on the hoist, and I'm looking over it. And I'm, it didn't take too long to realise that this car had never been raced. In fact, what it turned out to be, it was a show car. And that's all it was. And the suspension, it just had a, some, some conies, had standard springs. You couldn't select second gear or fourth gear because the gear stick would, would just uh, foul on the uh, on the floor because they'd put a new uh, a Muncie gearbox in it and they'd, they'd, never, they'd never even bothered to, uh, to line the gear shift up at all. It was, it, was, it was an absolute joke to start with. So we... We had a long road in front of us there because uh, those rover suspensions were quite different. They had a D and rear end, which wasn't really good for racing. And um, it was it was quite sad, really, because the, I think uh, with a good car, uh, you know, like and proper suspension, which we tried to put in in it, um, it could it could have been a like a half reasonable car. It was never going to be fast, so it was just too heavy. Even though the from the factory they stamped out uh, aluminium panels all round on the car, and uh, they did the best they could. Um, I did the best that I could on it uh, as well with what you had, but it was it was never going to be fast. And in fact, the first time we took it out to Calder, uh, we struggled to get down to the same times as his Cooper S. Uh, and of course, it was best known being a Camel cigarette sponsorship. Yeah, well, cigarette sponsorship back then was um, becoming very big you know, through through many parts of uh, sport, and motorsport jumped on it. And because of, the cigarette companies back then could see the writing on the wall, they knew advertising was going to be very restricted. And I think they had the tap on the shoulder then years to come that uh, they wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to advertise cigarettes. And sure enough, that did happen, as we see now. So they just poured money into all sorts of um, motorsports, Formula One, IndyCar racing, Australia, touring cars. Everyone had a bite of, uh, of the cigarette money back then, and they, and they had lots of money to burn huge amount and there were some 
very successful teams uh, built around the cigarette money, um, John Player special. What's your first involvement with Open Wheelers? You obviously have been early on with Richard Knight, but now there's a chance to uh, come across and move on to the big big game. It was the uh, I started off. I started off actually when I bought a Formula Ford myself, where you, what you and I worked on, and when I you know, went around Australia, um, and I wasn't I wasn't the fastest driver, I wasn't the slowest, I was just the midfield, midfield runner, as you probably remember. But the, I guess somebody asked me then what I was learning on on what to do on on the suspensions, what worked back then. Um, Little did I know then that was going to carry me through the next, uh, you know, 10, 15 years into motor racing because after I sold the Formula Ford, I did, uh, I worked for John Davison with the Matic and uh, he already had a chief mechanic there so I worked under this, um, his name was Drew, I don't remember his second name, nice young man. And uh, I learned quite, I learned sort of quite a lot then on just basic suspension, what does what. Um, and John John was very good. Uh, he was, you know, he was, he was competitive on the day. Uh, and it was, a, it was just a good time for me to familiarise myself with uh, open wheel racing. And then the following year, John Cannon with the march, he was advertising for a, for a, uh, a chief mechanic because he was coming out to Australia. The car was on the water, ready to go. And so I put my hand up and thought, this, this, uh, I think this will be good. And I got one, a mate of mine with a, um, a truck and trailer, and, uh, and we did the series over here. We learned a lot from John. He was really good. Um, nice bloke. We got on like a house on fire. And uh, I loved working on the march, and it was, if you probably remember, they were like, they were almost like a kick car back then. And, and all the march people, they, they made open wheel cars uncomplicated, and which, which probably annoyed a lot of the, the uh, race car builders because they were fairly easy to work on. And if, you can, if you've got a car that's easy to work on, it's usually reliable because you know, things just just happen by themselves, you know, it's just you're bolting on the stage, there doesn't have to be anything special to get it all bolted together, look like some of the Ferraris and a few of the Formula One cars. And the and I loved working on that uh, on that March. It was a an absolute favourite car of mine. And that's where I met Graham in that uh, in that series. And you know, we'd be Back at certain, you know, a couple of garages were open uh, to us back in Adelaide. It was, and I can't remember. Might have been Ram, someone Ramsey, maybe. He used to race a uh, HQ with a V8 and a four or five thousand engine, and he opened up his garage. He had a huge garage work slash workshop, and uh, there was probably uh, probably half a dozen teams that would uh, take their cars uh, there and they'd be there for, the, for that week of racing. And that's, that's where I bumped into Graham and we just, we just chatted and that's about it. Not much more, but uh, we were side by side. And 
and I've, uh, and I was, as I started working on John Cannon's car at that stage there, I, I really enjoyed working on that car. It was just so nice. And uh, John was still a good driver then. He was, he was past his peak, but he could keep the car competitive. And uh, we had some good finishes back then. I think we finished third at Sandown. I can't remember the others. But, uh, but overall, uh, a, a, lot, a lot of good times. I had there learning, uh, once again, just learning and, and I used to, you know, talking to Graham, uh, sorry, talking to John, I used to, I just used to ask him question after question after question when we were out there, why does it do this? You know, rebound the shock rules, how do you feel this? What about when we do this? And lowering the ride height, raising it up at the back and doing the wings and he, I think, I think he, yeah, he got a headache yeah, after every time I spoke to him. The poor bloke, I just let him drive any information that I could get off him. And that and that proved to be very good uh, the following year when uh, when I started to work for Graham. And Graham was racing um, the Tasman Series in Australia and you went back to America with him. But So that was in 1978? Yes, yeah, 1978 with okay. John Cannon and then Graham... With Graham, it was early '79. I left here; would have been April in '79. I went and then went um, went to work for uh, the Dayton Walker team, the Salt Walker. You told me recently of, of a time when you were at Calder, and Graham had one of his uh, spare cars that Salt Walker raced. Now, Salt has a a place in history, of course. Unfortunately, getting very severely burnt at the Indy 500, but you were with him at Calder one day. Tell us about that experience when uh, Graham turned up and you had two GM1s there. Well, we were we were preparing the cars. I'd been working for, uh, for Graham and we were preparing both the cars for the upcoming series. And the deal was that uh, it, Graham was supplying Salt Walter a uh, Formula 5000, which was his GM1, um, and that was gonna, that was a four race deal. And uh, in return, the uh, the Dayton Malta Corporation was going to give uh, Graham the spare car for Indy for the Indy 500 that year. Uh, unfortunately, um, that didn't happen. Graham kept his end of the deal, but the other end of the deal with uh, Salt and the Dayton Walton Corporation didn't come about. And unfortunately, Graham uh, didn't get a drive that year. I don't think he got a drive after that either, And uh, which is a bit of a shame because I think his finesse of the way he drives, he, was, he would have been very uh, capable. In fact, a few years before that, he got rookie of the year at uh, the Indy 500. He could drive. There wasn't a moment then you were told to get your helmet? Oh, yes. Back to the story. We're, so we've prepared the... Uh, we've got both cars ready. And uh, we finished up. So we put, them on, uh, we put them on the trailer. And off we go to, uh, to Calder. And Graham, had, Graham knew I'd, I'd raced cars for two or three years. And we backed the cars off and warmed them. Got them both warmed up. Got the oil temperature right up. And... Uh, and Graham's about to go out in his car, and he's pulled two helmets out. 
I thought, this is strange. I said, there's only, there's only one driver here. And he just threw me the helmet and said, you take it out, tell me what it's like. And I thought about it for about 0.2 of a second and then put the helmet on and jumped in the car and off I went. And uh, it's after from driving a Formula Ford, jumping into a 5,000 is a big, obviously a big step. One of the things that I noticed in the in the 5,000 is that is that the uh, the power and the torque of the car in second gear you you didn't start off in first because it was too low, so you start off in second gear. But in second, third, and fourth, it it just seemed to accelerate at the same rate. Although it was probably just as well cool with a very short circuit uh, because the the speed you can get up to so quickly it was uh, sort of take your breath away a little bit. That was a great experience, but that's the sort of faith that Graham had in people, and uh, and that's that's just so typical of the sort of things he would do. He, he was a lovely man. He was um, going to miss him. Now, at, at this stage of Graham's career. Um, he's uh, he's won three Tasman championships. I think the only man to have done that. He's won the Australian Grand Prix. He's won at least uh, twice, if not three times. He's won the LM Series. He's won uh, five thousands in Europe. Um, phenomenally successful. Successful. His cars are still running around all over the place in America, Australia, in New Zealand, and of course the UK. He raced in '73 in uh, the British Grand Prix with uh, Frank Williams. He'd been Rookie of the Year at the Indy 500 in 73. But he was still somebody that uh, had enormous self-belief to the point where he very cruelly, in some ways, some people think cruelly, was nicknamed Cassius. But he didn't see that as a as a, as a cruel uh, thing, did he? It's, unfortunately, unfortunately, Graham probably would have benefited of having a, a manager and a business partner. He, uh, when he, I, I, I asked him about why he won so much in America and Europe. And I, you know, we're just chatting one day, and I said, I said, Graham, I said, why you won so many races? You start from the front row of the grid very often. I said, more than more of times than not, you started from sort of a middle of the grid. Uh, forward, and he said, "Yeah." He said, "I was always, um, you know, testing the car and making sure I never pushed it too much in practice, and it didn't matter where I start. I knew I was going to win because I was just better than the others, and I had a good car. And it was very matter of fact. And he never, he never told me that as boasting. I never heard him boast. He was just very." straight down the line, very talented person. I mean, he was, an, as we all know, an excellent driver, right up there with the best. He was a great fabricator. He could build the car himself. He was an engine builder. I mean, he he, he could do anything. And I think that's what I enjoyed work, uh, you know, so much by working with him because it, you could talk about anything in the car and he... He understand and knew exactly what it was. And when it came to testing or whether it came time to uh, modify something, he always would listen 
and he would know exactly what you're talking about. Um, look, apart from, I mean, Mario was the best at at uh, feedback on suspension and uh, whether it was on the you know the banked ovals, the super super speedways, or or the uh, um, road racing. Graham was right up there with him, and I think the only probably the only reason that uh, Mario probably just had a, a slight edge on was because he had so much experience with Ferrari and the John Player team labels. But, uh, but Graham was very, very, one of the most underrated, most talented drivers there's been. Tell me, Ron, how long were you involved with Graham? I was involved with Graham for, well, I was involved with him for about a, probably a year, but actually working for him just it was just one of the race series. And then through, um, at the end of the series uh, where I swapped from Graham's car to Salt's car, uh, at the end of that, Salt asked me to come back and run his IndyCar team. And uh, so I thought, great opportunity. Uh, no, no children yet. Um, newly married. Um, took me five or six seconds to think about that when I said yes, and that was, and so we're off. And Graham, I went. In fact, Graham, I met Graham at the airport, and went over to the US with uh, with Graham, and uh, and he he just took me all over LA. He took me to all the engine builders, any anyone that he knew. Um, about from from years gone by, um, you know, a lot of a lot of famous people that we well, we would regard as famous back here. Um, he took me all over there, would not let me pay for a thing, and he was just like a big brother. And uh, it, it was just it was just wonderful. We yeah you know, we met all you know people that uh, race you know race car builders we went to and. Uh, Met a lot of his ex-girlfriends. <laughs> I mean, he, we, he was an interesting fellow, but uh, just a just a very very generous person, and uh, paid everything in cash. I don't think he ever. Owned, I don't think he owned a checkbook. Everything was cash, no matter how much it was. And uh, one interesting story he told me. He uh, back in the back in the early seventies when they were racing in the Formula 5000 series over there. At the end of the race, the promoters would pay the drivers in cash. And uh, on one particular time out at um, Riverside, uh, they were all standing on the podium, and I think Graham had come first or second, and he's jumped off, and the promoter comes over, gives him the big water cash for what the prize was, gave the other two drivers, Two or three people came around and said, "Excuse me, gentlemen, we're from the tax department. We'll take a third of all that." Graham said, "I got a third of that money out so quick and gave it to the cash man. Got a receipt from him, and I bolted. That's the only time he's ever seen a, a tax man ever. I mean, he was, uh, and that's that's the way it operated back then." <laughs> oh dear me! So, how many more years did you spend in the states then? I did a total of five years. I started with um, started with Dayton Walter, and Salt was, uh, Salt was an interesting character. 
Um, and I probably did half a dozen races with him. When I when I got to when I got to America um, after uh, Graham and I Graham went his way in LA and I jumped on a plane and went to Dayton. I um, got to the airport and the truck driver picked me up and a little bit of chatter. I went down. I said, "Well, how's the uh, how's the car going?" Because we had a car, we had a race coming up in I think two or three weeks in, in Atlanta. And from memory, I think it was a two. I think it was a two mile, two mile track, very steeply banked. Very steep, and uh, and I'd never seen, I'd never seen a uh, an IndyCar track before, and uh, so I've asked, I've asked the truck driver. I said, "Well, how's the team going?" You know, he sort of has a bit of a sideways look at me, and he says, "Team," he said, "You're it. There's no one there except you." He said, "The whole team walked out a couple of months ago." I thought, "Well, this is going to be interesting." So I've worked, I've walked into the workshop. And here's two M20 McLaren M25s, I think they call them. I think the I think the M24, no, they're M24s. The M23 was the Formula One car. The M20, the M23 was a Formula One car. The M24 was the Indy car that had a slightly um, longer longer wheelbase. The Formula Ones were too short, and uh, and on the super speedways, you just couldn't get around. Just fast enough. So I set about putting a setting up an Indy car, which I'd never seen in my life. And uh, after about two weeks of working from eight to eight to eleven, nearly every night, we finally got it together, and off we go to uh, off we go to Atlanta. And uh, setting setting up the suspension was was quite interesting because you you set them up with. Certain amount of cross weight, which is you have the right front and the left rear a little bit stronger than the left front right rear, and and then you have the chassis on a bit of a tilt. And uh, I'll tell the truth, I had no idea on how to set that up, and I didn't know how much spring weight you should have, how much cross weight. Didn't know anyway. I fumbled, fumbled my way through it. And then it comes to tyres, so we're at the track, and they have stagger on the tyres where the right-hand tyres are slightly bigger than the left hand by adjusting the air pressure. Once again, no idea. So I've, I've walked down to Goodyear, and and, uh, and I said, <laughs> I just said to the bloke, I said, "What's uh, what's everyone running?" He runs and. Figures past me. I said, "Yeah, I think I'll start at that too." He took the tyres back, and that was my introduction to setting up suspension on Indy cars. And we ended up finishing eighth, I think, an eighth in one race, and I think ninth in another race, which was Salt's best two finishes that he ever had. And, they <laughs> and uh, so we we got off to a good start, and we went off to Indy, and uh, I think we finished thirteenth at Indy. Which was once again one of his uh, really one of his best finishes. So things were ticking along just nicely, and then uh, unfortunately, uh, with Salt's injuries that he had, he had horrific injuries, as you would remember, Tony. 
when he had that um, terrible car crash. Terrible, carved off all his fingers. Um, he's lucky to be alive, let alone get back in a racing car. And I'll give him, um, I'll give him thumbs up for the amount of guts he had to get back into a racing car and still drive it pretty fast. But uh, I think the medication that uh, he was given to in hospital uh, just didn't get away from him and. Uh, I moved on, and uh, it was it was just probably a bit more for chance than anything because um, Vern Schuppen was driving through Dayton, and he was buying something off um, off the Dayton Walter team. I, I can't I can't remember what he what he was buying. I don't think it had any. I think it was like a vintage car or something. Because Vern was always into vintage cars. And Burnworth walked in the workshop and uh, nearly fell over. And I said, God, I said you know, what do you want here? And he said, what do you want here? Because you know, I'd, I'd met Burn back in Australia at some stage, just a hello, and that's about all. Anyway, we just sort of got talking, and he said, uh, he asked me if I'd be interested in working for him on his IndyCar team. So I said, man, this is just the, this is just the ticket I wanted. So I gave notice at the Dayton Walter team. I weren't too happy, and I started working for Vern, and uh, in a and I knew I was going to a lesser car. The car was older than the much older, and not nowhere near as good as what Salt was. But Vern was a terrific bloke to work with, and um, we got on really well. And we got a lot. Of, it had an old Offenhauser engine in it, which was well, there was a lot of Indy cars still running those Offenhausers, but. Um, they were very much underpowered compared to Cosworth's. But we had some really good finishes because we uh, did a lot of road racing in the in that IndyCar series. And he and I really got together on sorting out suspension. And we knew sort of just how much wing you could put into it. And uh, you know, Watkins Glen and what have you. We just, you know, we absolutely smoked a lot of those Cosworth engines. And, and I think we, uh, I think we got third, and I think it was only the answer. I think it was might have been our answer, not Bobby. Um, our answer, because he was a very good road racing. I, I can't remember who came first, but we, we really did well. So I worked with Vern uh, for the rest of that year. He was just, a, he was a hired driver, just like myself, a hired mechanic. And and at the end of the year, the team folded, and. Um, the next, the following year, I just rolled up at Indy and Bill Alsop uh, offered me a job. He'd missed the cut and he's, uh, I, there was a bit of friction in that team at the time and uh, he offered me a job and we really got, he had a, he had a Penske PC7 with a Cosworth in it and we got that car really going well. He went, in fact, first race, uh, he was he was always qualifying like you know in the back three or four, and the first race that we got to, we were running the second fastest time in qualifying, at, and it was at it was at Michigan, great track. Fell in love with that because it was so steep, and you could really set the car up to go fast. And Bill was pretty good at sorting suspension, but. 
I felt like um, he always had it, the car set up for him where it was safe. And safe is usually slow because if, a, if you're not confident in the car, the chief mechanic will wind the wings up, but that just that just drops your speed off so much. And but it gives you a safe car to drive, so that it doesn't step out on you. So we we just got about um, setting the car up, and we just kept on flattening out the wings as much as we could, and then we started working on on the cross weights on the on the car, and. We got onto a little key that uh, got the car going, and I just kept following that right through that through the whole suspension at that race, and uh, and it proved to be something that I kept in the back of my mind for many years to come, and uh, didn't share it with anyone, and uh, so that so Bill was pretty happy. So I had a good. Uh, I had a good couple of years with Bill. I won Rookie Crew Chief of the Year. And it was after that, um, I got uh, I was asked to prepare Mario's car at the Pat Patrick um, race team. And uh, Mario, we, Mario and I still keep in contact after all these years. And uh, he... It was, it, it was really good. and But as I was saying before, I put Graham in the same category as Mario as far as uh, feedback and being able to tune suspension. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with um, Graham and other light drivers uh, just because of, the, because of what you can learn. Um, and that was, was what I loved. And, uh, and I consider myself very, very privileged to work for Graham and those others, and he will be missed. There's something I uh, vividly remember you telling me, and I should probably just mention this to our listeners and to Craig, that I'd never seen an IndyCar race and had wanted to and been a long fan and helped Ron in his day, and my aspirations to be a race car mechanic were short-lived, but anyway... Um, but one of the things I vividly remember was uh, arriving in 93 up at Service Paradise when the Indy cars were still coming regularly. They'd been there for three or four years. And uh, you telling me that uh, when Roger Penske had come out and said hello to you, was Aaron was with us as a 10 or 12-year-old. <clears throat> and I remember you telling me how Roger Penske had several times asked you to come and work for him. And you'd sort of declined. You liked staying with a smaller team where you're able to manage it and have your input. Um, talk to us about that sort of thing, that process with Roger Penske, because, you know, being the rookie uh, crew chief of the year and, uh, you know, working your way through to uh, some very high uh, qualified drivers like Mario Andretti is, uh, is quite an accolade in your way. Yeah, Roger Penske, I met him, uh, I would have met Roger during the very first year of, uh, let's see, that'd be 79. So I met Roger then because um, the cart indie cars were a breakaway group from, uh, what were they called? The, there was another group. There was the, there was the main group um, of indie cars and, uh, and they had 
a lot of control on the on the drivers and the racetracks and so on. But and then Roger and and Pat Patrick and a few others uh, just didn't like the way or where uh, any car racing was going. So they had had a, had a uh, USAC. USAC that was the name of the group, and that had been on. They'd been running races for years and years and years. So there was a breakaway group, and there was us and them, and I was on the side of the Indy cars on the uh, kart racing. I didn't know anything about the politics, wasn't interested. Roger was, uh, I'd have to say, he's probably one of the most respected um, business people that I've ever met. Um, he's a people person. He uh, He's always ready to pump your tyres up. Um, he is, he's one of those people that can, can see an opportunity and he'll, he, he knows how to deal with it, take it. He, he, had a, he was brilliant at picking drivers. He, ha, he always had some of the best drivers in his team. And uh, it was at a time when, it was a time after I won Chief Mechanic of the Year, my driver, Bill Olsen, he got a drive with Penske because we, we got his car going. Because we got his car going so fast, and, and it wasn't just me either. It was, you know, there was a, there was a bunch of um, bikes on the team and everyone. I had some great mechanics and make, they always make you look good. And uh, if you've got a good team, you know, it's very easy to, uh, you know, to look good. But uh, I'll, be, I'll be honest, you know, if those folks that worked for me were every bit as good, if not better, at fabricating and do sort of things. And but we worked together as a team, and that's what got Bill up the front of the grid, because everyone worked as a team. The engine builder, the myself, the mechanics that I had working for me, and so Bill's got a drive with Roger Penske, and I'm sort of not doing a great deal in Bill's workshop. So Roger Penske rang me up and asked me to. If, he, if I could help out for a, you know, a couple of races for his son, Roger Jr. in uh, what would they call those little Volkswagen engine things? I like a Formula One car. Uh, sorry, a Formula Three car with a like a two-liter in the back and a two-liter Volkswagen. Super V's. They were called Super V's back then. So I worked on his car for a while and... He had Roger obviously had some very good people working for him, and to go to go to work for uh, for Roger, although it would have been good, um, would have been right down the bottom of the engine pile. Wouldn't have been good for Joanne, my wife, because she wouldn't have been able to be involved in the team. Because all the teams that I worked for, Joanne was able to be um, part involvement in there. Um, you know, organising all the organisation parts of it. And which she, which she was very good at, and and, I, and to be honest with you, that was probably the main reason I didn't go because you know, Joanne and I are a team as well. Uh, but Roger, fantastic bloke, and uh, as you would have known when I introduced you to, uh, introduced you to him up in the uh, surfers, he'll just go five ten minutes flat out, taking you around, introducing to the new staff, showing you stuff then, and then okay, good to meet you, Ron. I've got someone else here I need to talk to. Done. But he's there. Yeah. He always he, he's Indeed. not someone that 
you know, he's not. He, he's just the. He's just a nice person. That's 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 my view of him. He's a nice person. Ron, let's uh, reflect back. So when you returned to Australia, it was the late eighties. Mid eighties, I was there from seventy nine to the end of eighty three. I went. Uh, okay. I did. I did a. Uh, I did. A, I did a. Uh, after I worked. After I worked for Maya, um, it was four years was up. Uh, we had one child, and Joe and I had a bit of a talk. And said, "Well, this is not, this is not the best way for <laughs> for bringing up a family. Is you never you you're just not home and work." When I was working for Mario, uh, the Pat Patrick Grace team, uh, wives could wives couldn't come to the race meetings. Uh, they weren't allowed, and it was only just the odd race here and there where the where they'd allow the women to come along, and uh, and we we sort of said then, okay. Um, we'll give it one more year and Bill also rang me up and he said would you like to come back and I was about to join Mario up in Chicago uh, with Bill Hans and uh, Carl Haas sorry and uh Oh gosh, we chewed it over and chewed it over because I was the only one from Patrick's team who Mario asked to come up because I was, I was his chief mechanic and we got on really good. Uh, just understood cars the same together, you know, and what we did. I chewed it over, chewed it over, and I said, Mario, I said, Mario, I said, I'm leaving at the end of next year. And I said, uh, I think I'll go back to work with Bill where Joanne can be sort of part of the team. And he said, okay. And uh, at the end of the year, and at the end of the following year, after after I'd finished with um, with Bill again, he rang me up and he said, and it was like the godfather ringing up. He says, uh, right, I got Michael coming into the IndyCars. The family wants you to work for him. You know. I said, sorry, mate. I said, oh, I've got to go home. I said, it's, um, I've got to put the family first, which I did. And uh, but to this day, I still, uh, you know, we're still keeping contact. You know, just send Christmas cards, bit of a note here and there with each other. And uh, Mario lost his wife year before last, which is very sad. Uh, and you can see it in in Mario's eyes. You know, I saw an interview with him, and he's he lost the love of his life that he had for all those years right through Formula One. He was a he was great to work with. I think one of my favourite stories that you told me, Ron, and it's about your eldest son or your only son, Aaron. Um, and Aaron's been on the professional golf tournament for at least ten years, if not a lot longer. Twenty years? No, not twenty. Yeah, 20, 21 years. years. 21 years. As as typically, of course, it was somewhere in America, somewhere uh, maybe over Arizona, Texas way, and he was doing a supermarket, to, doing an autograph signing to promote a golf tournament. Yes. And the bloke walked up to the yes. table and said, hey, can you sign it to Mario? Yeah. it's The, the sort of bloke Mario is, 
there's two stories. Okay, so Mario's doing a book signing and uh, Aaron stood in line and he, he said he had to wait nearly an hour. The line was that long for doing the signing or what have you. Anyway, they they get to the uh, he gets up to the counter wherever Mario was and he introduces himself. And Mario just throws his arms up and a big smile. He says, Aaron, he says, I've been following you every week on the tour. And I watch you do this. And for probably 10 or 15 minutes, Mario is asking Aaron about his career. Not one thing about himself, but was all about my son. And uh, and he said, look, you know, the, the line's getting longer. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to start signing books. Anyway, Aaron jumps in the car and tells me the story. And uh, and Aaron says, Dad, I can't believe it. He said, I never even got a chance to ask him about his career. Never got a chance to even talk to him what he's done. He said, all he was interested in was me. Now, being Aaron, he said he was interested in um, you know, his golfing career. And I said, well, that's the sort of bloke he is. When I was in Surface Paradise, similar story. And uh, we're on pit lane. and I'm, I was up there with three or four mates, and they all raced cars. And we're walking down, and I'm looking because any cars are out, and I'd got some pit passes. And we walked down. I said to the blokes, I said, look, let's go and find Mario. I'll introduce you to him. You can have a bit of a chat, blah, blah, blah. And Mario's sitting on the wall. And so I've introduced all the four blokes to Mario. And for 20 minutes, Mario asks them about their racing career, about their cars, what engines they had, what, and so on. And this is for 20 minutes. And uh, Mario looks at his watch and says, look, I've got to go. I've got to get uh, into the car. We're going to be out in you know, 15 minutes. Everyone shook hands. We're walking off. And one of the blokes just stood and he turned around and said, boys, do you realise we never even got to ask Mario one thing about what he does, what his career is, the car he's driving? He said, all Mario did was ask us about our cars. I said, that's the sort of bloke he is. I said he's 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 just not self-centered. He's uh, he's he's like a and it's it's like another Roger Penske. He's interested in what other people are. And um, I've been fortunate to meet some wonderful people in motoration. <coughs> Sorry, and um, you know Mario is one of them. He's uh, he's just that. It was just that sort of bloke that will always give you time. And always sort of, and as I say this, you know, and I know this is all about um, Graham McRae too, I always reflect back with, to Graham. I never heard him talk about himself as, as um, in a boastful way, as I said previously. Um, Graham was just such a sincere, sincere person that believed in what he could do. And he knew it too. He, he knew he was good. And he's... He capitalised it, and I'm sure he would have. Um, I'm sure in the right hands, getting the right breaks, the right you know sponsorship, he could have uh, gone to the same heights as what Mario 
would have done an, an, another Formula One drivers. I uh, told people about when I met up with Graham, and I mentioned it the other day that one of the things that uh, quite stunned me about Graham was we, we met up in a, a cafe pie shop just north of Auckland, and I had uh, two three hours with him. And one of the uh, surprising things was that when he said, "Oh, we we can't stay here. They need the tables in this cafe for their customers," and there, there was plenty of tables there, but. Um, it was a mark of, and I remember you saying to me that it was a mark of Graham that he was concerned for them, their business, that he was affecting it. And uh, it was quite something that uh, he was a man who, you know, he, he goes there every day for a pie, but he was more concerned about their shop and their business and how they yeah. were doing. Yeah, so it's yeah. something that probably a lot of, Ron, tell, tell us something that, you know, I mean, you spent, you know, some time with Graham. He was an exceptional person that most people don't ever get a chance to have seen or heard. So tell us a little bit about him, what he was like to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Oh, as, I, well, as I said before, um, Graham, to me, after meeting him, working with him, travelling with him, uh, you know, sharing different parts of uh, you know each other's lives and what have you, Graham was like a, a big brother. Uh, but it wasn't just to me. He was like that with what I saw was uh, with most, uh, most people. And because he had respect for other people. If, uh, like, I never heard him say a bad word about any other race car driver. Um, I never, in fact, you know, I, I'm not, I can't even remember him saying it, giving, having a bad word about anyone, really. He was so in what he did because he loved what he did. He he loved being a race driver, and I'm I'm not sure how he kept it all, all going with um, with the amount of money that he didn't have. Because as you know, motor race has never been never been a cheap sport, and to to do what he did, and and, and look, a lot of people, you know, um, very. Very difficult, and he and he did it pretty much on his own back. And um, as I was saying, you see, if he had a if he had a bus- a business partner and uh, and a manager, and I think Graham would have gone to great heights. Um, you know, much more than what he was. I I, I really would have liked to have seen him um, get a get a good drive in Formula One. Um, he was get he was probably getting. Quite at A standards, uh, probably a, a little bit older when he got a drive. So I think he was in his early 30s, which most of the drivers back then were starting around about 23, 24 after they did an apprenticeship in Formula 3, Formula 2, and then Formula 1. But Graham himself, um, just a generous man, uh, he was always full of life. Um, he, he never went out partying. Uh, at all, he was. But having said that, he would go out. He would go out for a good time, and uh, which he took me out. And wherever we wherever we went, he always always was looking over me. You know, just like a like a big brother. He was uh, he was a terrific man, and uh, I, I just feel just so privileged that I've shared some of his life. Um, he will be sadly missed by a lot of people. Ron. Thank you so much for sharing your tales, uh, particularly around uh, 
Graham McRae. He uh, he was a, a mighty constructor, racer, um, just an extraordinary race driver, and uh, somebody who I was very privileged to have met and interviewed and uh, spent some time with. I mean, I was only in my very uh, early twenties when he was racing over here regularly in the Tasman and. Uh, my gosh, he was uh, quite some driver. So thanks, Ron Badley, oh, yeah. for sharing uh, your memories of uh, Graeme McRae. It was wonderful yeah. to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks very much. I feel privileged just to be on your show, Tony. Thank you very much. Inside Motorsport is produced by Thunder Media for the Community Radio Network.